Steve, I'm going to show those two pictures of Cole to start here at the end of the message. So, uh, yeah, Trent and Kaylin and, and William Saturday night got to come down to enjoy something really special for the Carlucci family. Many of you don't know the story. I don't have time to tell the whole thing, but uh, last fall, Cole was playing football, and he tore his ACL. And uh, usually what that means is it, you lose the next year of, of uh, activity. And so it was a devastating injury for our family. Cole missed the end of his football season. But more, um, not more, um, uh, yeah, more difficultly, or more difficult would be the fact that he was going to lose his wrestling season. Cole's wrestled since first grade. It's his senior year, and he was preseason number two in the state. Not that anyone's paying attention to those things. or <laughs> spending endless amounts of time reading all those things. And so our family was de- uh, devastated, but somehow God did something amazing. And I, I don't want to call it a miracle, but he wrestled the entire season without an ACL and ended up winning a state championship last Saturday night. And... Uh, and I got the special pleasure as his coach of being on the mat with him and getting to coach him. And, and then afterwards, the Pruitts and many others that were a part of our community were there to, to celebrate and welcome Cole in. And it was amazing. You know, it's just a testament of the power of a church. So last October, we came in here on a Sunday just two days after his injury. And many of you cried with my son in here. And um, it was amazing to see how the church cared for our family. And then two days later, Cole comes to youth group because he's a middle school youth leader. And one of the small groups of middle school girls said, Cole, we want to pray for you. And so middle school girls prayed for my giant behemoth son. (laughs) And they just prayed that God would do something amazing. And, um, you know, Words are being used like amazing that he was able to do what he did with his injury. And, you know, all I know is I don't know if God did a miracle, but I know that God was working in his life. And I know that God used the prayers of people here. And he gave us a lot of wisdom from people here. And so to share that sadness with you, but then to also share the joy with you is amazing. And uh, we're grateful for that. And that's why, by the way, someday I want to put William's picture up there because what church doesn't need more state champions, right? All right. I want to start today uh, by telling you a little bit about Patrick of Ireland. In a couple weeks, our country will celebrate St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, the day that commemorates his death. Uh, St. Patrick's Day is a lot, about a whole lot more than beer and Irish whiskey and the color green. It's about remembering an amazing life. And I think it's important today for Christians who are just so separated from our past and history. And we, and we know, usually we know more bad Christians than we know good ones, I think it's important to have some heroes. And so Patrick's one of those heroes. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about him. He grew up uh, in England, and when he was 16 years old, he was kidnapped from his home by Irish pirates and taken back to Ireland where he lived as a slave for six or seven years. Just a horrible period of time. And uh, he was treated just as slaves are treated and had no rights and just was worked to, to, to death and eventually escaped and made his way back to England. Well, during that time, God began to work in his life and speak to him, and God did what he often does, is God called him back into the very place of his pain. 
That's what God does. He sends us back into those dark places that he pulled us out of. And so he sent him to Ireland to, to be a missionary. And, and during his life, his accomplishments uh, are, are well documented. But the rest of his life was dedicated to helping bring the message of Jesus and the gospel to this entire island that was made up uh, of pagan tribe, Celtic tribes. They were at war with each other. They were fierce. They were brutal. Just ask the Roman Empire when they greeted them on the beach and they couldn't beat them. I mean, this was a fierce, uh, independent group of people that somehow uh, Patrick was able to bring unity around them or bring unity for them around the gospel. It was amazing. And so when you read about Patrick, you can read about the visions and the miracles, and maybe you believe them or you, you tend not to. I tend to believe them because when something that amazing happens in an entire culture in a generation or two, there's some power behind it. And the Holy Spirit works, and the Holy Spirit was doing amazing things. But I tell you about Patrick today because we're making a point to talk about the incarnational life. And the incarnational life is the embodiment of Jesus in the world today. And it really heightens our awareness in two areas. Number one, the incarnational life or the sacramental life or the incarnational stream, we could say, reminds us that God is near, God is present, and God is accessible to us. And then if you go a little further, Christians who embrace the sacramental life understand that when they bring the presence of God into different places, they remind people that God is present, that God is near, and that God's love, truth, and beauty is accessible through our lives. Do you know that? God wants to reveal himself to others through you. So Patrick gets called by God. He, he has this heart for these people, and he knows that, that their life will not change unless someone lives among, him, among them. So he embodied the life of Jesus as he went back to Ireland to live as a missionary among them. But here's what I love about Patrick. He was just very practical, too. And he used the physical world to help those pagan Celts understand the mystery of God, the truth of Jesus. And so he used things like bonfires that were important in their culture, to somehow point to the resurrection. I still haven't quite figured it out, but it worked for them. On Easter, throughout Ireland still today, bonfires are lit as part of what Patrick did to help them see that the Lord is, has been risen. He used things like the physical sun, which was important in Celtic culture, as a way to, to point towards the creator God. So when you look at a Celtic cross today, you'll see the cross and you'll see a circle in it. That's a picture of the physical sun. And Patrick was trying to help them see the same God that created the world is the God that climbed up on a cross and died for you and loves you personally. He took things like the three-leaf clover and he held it up and he said, let me tell you about something called the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each one unique, but together makes a whole. See how he's making things accessible? Incarnate among the people, reminding them that God is present, God is accessible, and then bringing the love, the truth and, truth, and the beauty of God to people by using physical things to help them understand it. So I say all that because we're talking about the incarnational stream. We're in a series that Aaron began last week called There is a River that comes right out of Psalm chapter 46 that says this, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And what we want to present to you is that Christianity is this great big river of life, and there are many different streams that make up what God has been doing throughout history. Now, these streams are often separated from one another. We often refer to them today as denominations or different families of churches, and there's different reasons for it. Geography, disputes around theology, uh, politics, 
All of these things have contributed to separating the streams. But over the, the recent years, because the world is so connected, because more people live in cities and urban areas than in rural areas. Did you know that's the case? The first time that happened in human history was the year 2000, that more people were urban than rural. What that means is we're just around people more. We're around ideas, and there's this increased marketplace of ideas. And so what's happened within Christianity, especially in the last 20 years, is we've learned from one another, and we've learned how to appreciate one another. And this is one of the things that Cornerstone is built on. We want to celebrate all of the streams. We want to celebrate the best of all of the streams. And many of you here represent them. And so let me mention a few. Last week, Aaron started with the word-centered life or the evangelical stream. There's also the spirit-empowered life or the charismatic stream, the virtuous life or the holiness stream, the prayer-filled life or the contemplative stream, the compassionate life or the justice stream, the seamless-centered life or the messianic stream, or today as we're talking about the sacramental life or the incarnational stream. Let me add to why some of the things Aaron said about the benefits of the streams, okay? This will help explain to you, to others, historical Christianity. Ever wondered why there's so many different families and denominations and why some guys wear robes and hats and others don't? Ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why as a church here at Cornerstone, we draw from some Catholic traditions and some Jewish traditions and some evangelical and charismatic traditions? That's because we are embracing the streams. We see them as vital to our community here. And really what they do is they help, what we're trying to do is help you see the meaning behind these things. Because faith can be meaningless. So we want you to see how these things are meaningful. The streams, I think this is the most important reason for sharing the streams. The streams paint a holistic picture of the faith of Jesus. And that's a little bit different than faith in Jesus. Spend a lot of time talking about faith in Jesus, which we should. But understanding the faith of Jesus helps us understand faith in Jesus. For example, Jesus was Jewish. Celebrated the Jewish feasts. Celebrated the Passover. Likened his own salvation to us to when God saved the Jewish people out of Egypt. And so the faith of Jesus is important and the streams help bring that out. And then lastly, this can be a map for you. This can help you take the next step in your faith. I can tell you there's been a number of times in my life where faith got stale and boring. I'm glad to admit it. But every time that happened, I connected to a new stream that was not so familiar, and it brought new life and energy and passion to my relationship with Jesus, and we hope it'll do the same for you. And so there is a river whose streams make glad the city of, city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And so that's what we are hoping for you, that it will bring joy and goodness. All right, let's go to the sacramental life or the incarnational stream. Sacrament is a great big word, or sacramental is a great big religious word. It's not meant to be scary. It simply means this. It's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And today I want to talk about it in three different ways. First of all, it is the physical pointing to the spiritual, holding up that three-leaf clover, right? It's the ordinary becoming sacred, all of life matters. And number three, it is God filling the emptiness with his presence or the chaos with his order and with his joy. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is one of the places this theme shows up in the Bible. This is a theme of being reminded that God's presence 
is with us, that he is near, that he's accessible, but also knowing that we are a vessel by which God communicates that to other people. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul is writing, and the, the bigger context here, besides the incarnational stream, is he's trying to help a group of Christians understand what it looks like to represent God in a very difficult time. They're being persecuted. Life is tough. And he's reminding them, and he's teaching them of why some people believe and some people don't. But he's reminding them of the importance of what's been placed inside of them and letting it be seen. Okay, so that idea of bringing the presence of God into the world so people can can access his beauty and his love and his goodness. So verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Here's the verse. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that in his life, so his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So think of that for a moment. The physical pointing to the spiritual, the ordinary pointing to the sacred, our lives pointing to his life. It's a powerful truth. Now, verse 7 is the one I want to focus in on. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that all this surpassing power is from God and not from us. Then he goes on to describe what that treasure is and how it's being revealed. So let's point that out. What is the treasure? The treasure that's been placed inside of us, a human heart, a human story, is the death of Jesus. The grace of Jesus, the message of forgiveness. What's been placed inside of us is the hope of Jesus, the resurrection, that there is new life, new creation, that God has never done with us. God can always bring renewal. That's the treasure that's been placed inside of you. The gospel has been placed inside of you. The the message that brings life to all people is the treasure that has been placed inside of you. And you are the jar. I'm the jar. And not only are our stories the jar, but our bodies are the jar. Our daily lives are the jar. The day-to-day is the jar. The way we worship is the jar that holds the treasure. Now, it's important to, to make a separation between what is treasure, what is gold, and what's the jar. You're wonderful. I don't know all of you, but I just assume you're amazing, wonderful people. You're very good looking, especially without your masks. But you're not the treasure. I'm not the treasure. Something truly beautiful, full of truth, something that's liberating, that's creative, that's renewing, that never gets old has been placed inside of you. That's the treasure, and you're the jar, which makes us an incredible honor to be the people that gets to house the treasure. But there are other jars besides just our bodies and, um, and our stories. Let me give you an example. This is the physical pointing to the invisible. Jars can be really silly things. And so for a very, very long time, Christians have lit candles and in a similar way, we light put up Christmas lights at Christmas to do what? 
to represent God's light shining in darkness. Candles are often lit during services to be a physical reminder of who's in the room. Do you know the Holy Spirit's in the room? Many of you felt his presence and heard him during worship. Now, the Holy Spirit is not the flame, but the flame is a picture of the Holy Spirit that is just as tangible and real in the room with us. This is the physical pointing to the spiritual. It's helpful for people, okay? There are other examples. Creation itself is a jar that houses the treasure. Creation is not God. Many faiths believe that. But we believe that God is embedded in creation, a message about him. In fact, Romans chapter 1 tells us that. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. See that? The visible pointing to the invisible. The physical pointing to the spiritual. Being understood from what has been made so that uh, there is no excuse. People are without excuse. Creation is a gift. Maybe you're not a Christian, but you've taken a hike or you've sat on a beach or you've looked at a sunset and you have been struck with the heaviness of the beauty around you. It, it, something was being done to you. You felt something transcendent. Has that happened to anyone else? You're just outside saying, holy cow, look at that. That's meant to point to the creator, to God's beauty, to God's power. So a candle, creation, your day-to-day life, we'll get to this in a moment. Your families and work are part of that. Author Chris Webb, who's an Anglican I enjoy reading, says, Your life is a sacrament made holy by God's presence within it. You incarnate the life of Christ in your home, your church, your community. You're a sacrament. Your life. Now that can sound absurd to some people because you know how ordinary your day-to-day can be. This is one of those things that's been weaved through the scriptures. It's a part of the life of Jesus. Says, no, it all matters. There's no separation between the physical and the spiritual in the sense that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. God cares about all of it. And he uses all of it to share himself. And so let's go through these. The incarnational stream. The physical pointing to the spiritual. Let me mention a few ways this shows up in churches. Okay, So I'm going to use the, another uh, big churchy word. The word is liturgy. And liturgy simply just means order of worship. Now, throughout Christian history, there's been a number of different liturgies. And depending on your spiritual family or denomination, uh, you follow a different liturgy. Even here at Cornerstone, we don't have a book of order. But our liturgy is we dedicate babies under a Jewish prayer shawl. And we put a rock band up here. And your pastor looks like this. We have a liturgy. Everyone has something they embrace as kind of an order of worship. But there are other churches. Often the sacramental life gets associated with what we call the high churches or the liturgical churches. So how many of you have ever, ever been to an Eastern Orthodox service or a Catholic service or at least seen part of what on TV? Raise your hand. Okay. There could be a lot of things that look really, really weird, right? The, the, the priest is in a robe. There are lots of candles. They're waving smoke and incense through the room. All of those things, by the way, are meant to be reminders to the people that are in the service that God is near and God is present and God is accessible. And so the robe 
is meant to be a picture of the righteousness of Jesus, the righteousness of Christ that's been placed on all of us. It's meant to be a physical picture of that every day. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people don't know that, but you're meant to look at it and say, man, there should be no shame. Look what God has clothed me in. The incense is meant to be a picture of our prayers and our, our worship that's lifted up to the Lord. There's so many different things. You walk into those buildings, a lot of times there's stained glass or frescoes or, or paintings, um, more modern, just paintings on drywall. And it's meant to show you the, the meaning and the, and the stories of the scriptures. They're beautiful settings that are meant to lift our eyes. Now, that's not for all of us. When, uh, when I first felt called into ministry, I made a deal with God, and the deal went like this. I'm not going to be celibate. I'm getting married, and I'm not going to wear a dress. And I'm stuck by my deal. But there's a reason for those things. We're all allowed within what we call the the river of Christianity to build into our lives our own liturgy, our own order of worship that's meant to be a reminder that God is close and God is near. Now, let me mention a few things that Christians do agree on, okay? A few sacraments that are really, really important, and they are really important to us here at Cornerstone. The first is what we call communion, and there are different names and different streams, the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, Mass. We're going to take it here in a moment. What is this? But this is a reminder of something that's happened. It's the physical pointing to the spiritual, the physical pointing to the invisible. We are reminded of the death of Jesus, and so you can see 1 Corinthians 11 behind me. This is Jesus, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the Lord took, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, the cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's not an empty tradition. It's full of meaning. That's why he told us to do it. What's the treasure? The message that he's died for us. That grace is available. That forgiveness is available. That the price has been paid for sin. That's the treasure. What's the jar? Well, a goofy little cracker and some juice that we take together. Treasure in jars of clay. Then there's also baptism. Romans chapter 6, Paul speaking of baptism and its meaning. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What does baptism represent? What is the treasure? The treasure represents the repentance in your heart. It's one reason Jews were being baptized at the time, to signify a change of direction. It also represents that you have been buried with him and raised to new life. When we baptize people here, we celebrate new creation. We celebrate God's renewal. We celebrate his kingdom. That's the treasure. The jar is the water in the hot tub. I mean, a hot tub's a jar at Cornerstone. How weird, right? The jar doesn't matter. What matters is the treasure. Now, unfortunately, one way you can explain a lot of Christian history is that there's been a lot of arguing about the jars. How do we take communion? Who takes communion? When do we take communion? What do we call it? 
Who do we baptize? When do we baptize? When can we baptize? Or what do we baptize them in? See the arguments that have emerged? Unfortunately, we argue about the jar when what matters is the treasure. Each church, each family is allowed to be led by God, but what can never be taken away is the treasure that's placed in jars of clay. That's the incarnational life. Here's a couple other ones. Marriage is a sacrament. Scriptures tell us that. You get to the book of Ephesians, and Paul says some amazing things about marriage, biblical marriage between a man and a woman. And the difference in gender is very, very important. And this is what he's trying to say. There are two that are very different that come together to be one. And that oneness that's occurred in marriage is not just about personal happiness and having more babies, which is also important. God told us to be fruitful and multiply. God likes people. He wants more of them, okay? But marriage is not just about that. He tells us in Ephesians that marriage is meant to be a picture of something else. He says it's a mystery. In fact, he says it's a mega mystery that marriage is meant to sketch out the framework for the gospel. Did you know that God put the blueprints for the gospel inside the relationship of marriage? Every time I do a wedding, I look at the couple and I say, hey, take this very serious because your marriage is meant to tell a story. And could it be that one reason people have a hard time understanding God's love for us and mutual submission to one another, the gospel, all of those things is because marriage has lost its meaning in our culture. It is the visible pointing to the invisible. Marriage is the jar. The picture it paints is the treasure. Here's a couple other sacraments. How about care for the poor? This is one that's often forgotten within our kind of family of faith as evangelicals. Matthew chapter 25, verse 45, Jesus tells a parable. He says, truly, I tell you, whatever you did, not for one of the least of these, you did unto me. What you did for them, you did for me. What you didn't do for them, you didn't do for me. For 2,000 years, there's been a group of Christians that believe Jesus is present when we sacrifice for the poor, the brokenhearted, the lost, that he is there, that he is present. And why do we think that? Because we know that he has a preference for them. Right? The shepherd leaves the 99 to go look for the one. He is near the brokenhearted. This is a sacrament. God uses your generosity, your service, your sacrifice to remind people that he is near, that he is present, that he is accessible. By the way, he can remind you that he's near to you, present and accessible as you care for the poor. It might be a gift just for you when you do so. When you're generous, when you're there, when you show up. Those are some of the sacraments Christians have agreed on for a very long time. Do you see how it's the visible pointing to the invisible? It's meaningful. There's also the ordinary becoming sacred. This is another part of the sacramental life. And I'll just mention two areas. First of all, work and, and then family. You know, Jesus lived 33 years. He did religious things for three years. The rest of that time, really probably since he, from about the age of 8 to 30, <clears throat> he was an apprentice to his father learning his working trade. So there's a little debate whether or not he was a carpenter that worked with wood. Maybe he was, and you can imagine Jesus up on beams building a home. He's got a hammer in his belt, nail in his mouth, working. 
Some people believe that uh, he was a carpenter in the sense that he worked with stone and he's building walls and mortar. The fact that Jesus ate a meal, lived in a home, worked, brings meaning to our day-to-day ordinary lives. It all matters to him. It's all an opportunity to respond to God, to worship back. That's why Paul, who understood the incarnational life maybe more than anyone besides Jesus, said this in Colossians. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then if you go down to verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as for working for the Lord, not for human masters. You want to grow in the incarnational life? The tasks that you're about to go into this week. Be aware of God's presence, his nearness, his accessibility. Be aware that God wants to love the world through your work. Now, you might not like your job anymore, but you will be full of meaning. It will be full of meaning. You'll be full of his presence. Family is another place this plays out. There's a Jewish quote I love. It goes like this. Every table is an altar. Every home a sanctuary. Every meal a celebration of life. With your roommates or your young couple or you have lots of kids or you have grandkids, your family is the place that God wants to show up. He's present there. He's accessible there. And he wants to use the little things to reveal himself to. How many of you as young parents, either long ago if you're a parent or, or recently if you're a young parent right now, how many of you when you had children and you looked at them for the first time and you went through certain experiences like disciplining them or providing for them, you actually thought, oh, this is what it's like for God with me. How many of you have had that experience? Over and over. I remember Cole trying to get into the outlet when he was little. And I kept pulling his hand away. And uh, he wouldn't stop. And I kept pulling away. And I moved him away. And he threw this giant fit that I wouldn't give him the thing that he wanted, but I knew it would hurt him. And I thought to myself, how often has God pulled me away from the outlet? And I threw a fit. I mean, there are so many ways God can reveal himself in the day-to-day. So look for him. He's there. He's close. He's accessible. He's near. He's present. Look for him. This is a third part of the incarnational life, and that is that God will use his presence, he will use our presence to fill empty, chaotic spaces with joy and peace, all right? So his peaceful presence will enter. And I could describe this a lot of different ways. Um, You know, the, the first story we find in the Bible the, the earth, the world was formless and void and is chaotic, and he spoke. He was present, and he brought it to being. John chapter 1, the world was consumed with darkness and sin. He sent his son. He was present, incarnate, to be there with us. Now, how is it that God makes his presence known in the world today? I'll tell you the number one way. God shows us what he's like. The number one way. He serves others. The number one way he cares for other people. It's through this really fragile, faulty invention called the church. Who created the church? God did. He breathed life into imperfect people and fragile relationships and divisions and all the things. Today, God makes his presence known in the church. That's why Paul uses this imagery. You are the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. Each one has a part in it. You read the chapter, it talks about how each one's important. We we rejoice together, we suffer together, all the things. 
What's the treasure? The treasure is the death of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, the love of Jesus. The treasure is the hope of Jesus, the resurrection, new life, new, new creation. And what is the jar? You, but when it comes to the church, it's us. You can't be the church by yourself. You're the church with others. Now, this might be a really cracked and ugly-looking jar. But he has not thrown it out. In fact, one of the messages of the streams when you study it historically is you see that God has never abandoned the church. He keeps coming in and correcting it. We are a jar that houses the treasure. You know why we're going through all this hassle with the mud that we will be dealing with for four more months, unfortunately? I'm sorry. It's because we're trying to make space and make sure that this church is ready for 20 more years of ministry in this town. The town that churches leave and the town where churches close. In a county where it's hard to have churches, where churches leave and churches close. We believe it's important for us to be here, to be like him, to announce in our bodies and in our lives and in our stories the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. We believe that's important. Unfortunately, there are a group of Christians today who they look at the church and they see things that are real. They see the hypocrisy and the emptiness and they get hurt. And they see the fighting and they leave and they, and they go away. And they become this critic from a distance as if they're the only ones that see the church for what it really is. I'll tell you what, every pastor knows all the flaws. When I have meetings with people like that and they start ripping on the church, I'm like, let me, let me add to it. Let me help you. And we keep going. I'm like, let me tell you about so-and-so. They're awful. No, not really. I don't tell them that. All right, just so I don't use your names, all right? Just, let, me, let me just add to it. All right. But this is what I say to him when we have that conversation, but you're missing the point. The jar has always been flawed, but it houses the treasure. You're missing the treasure. If our family wasn't such a part of what happens here, you know, we wouldn't have been blessed that Sunday in October when we were all hurting. If our family wasn't a part of this, we wouldn't have been blessed last Saturday when Cole entered into the suite at Ball Arena and was greeted by 50 to 70 friends and family, from many of them from this church, cheering for him. We would have missed that. If we weren't a part of this, we would miss the treasure of, I have friends that come in and just step into my life and help speak truth to me and help me. We would miss it. I know what's wrong. We all do. The jar looks ugly at times, but there's treasure inside. And that is why one of the ending messages of the sacramental life is to be more invested in what God is doing in the body of Christ than less invested. To be a part, to see what he's doing, to join in. Where things are crappy, help clean them up. Where things need healed, be a person of peace. Where there is hypocrisy, be a person of authenticity and truth and of integrity. That's what God's inviting us into. So the incarnational life, you know, I'll tell you what I do. If you, when you begin to understand it, every moment of every day can be a moment that God can break through in your life and show you something meaningful and deep. It all matters to him.
But what we do also matters because we are jars ourselves that house the treasure. All right, I want to invite the worship team up. And I want to close today with one of our very old practices that we mentioned a moment ago. There is nothing magical about the bread or the juice. It is simply a jar that holds treasure. So as we consider today, before we take the elements, as we consider the meaning of his death, I want you to let that be personal to you. Feel his love. Feel his pursuit for you. Understand your need for a savior. Sin is very, very real. It's influence and power, and he's broken in our life, and when he hung on a cross, he did so. There's payment that's required for sin. When he hung on the cross, he paid it. So this is what we celebrate. And so let's take the bread. Imagine for a moment his body whipped, pierced, hurting, dying for you. And the cup, Jesus also said represents the new covenant, new creation. But this is a picture of his real blood that dripped from his side and from his hands and his feet. I'm moved by how brave he was. How is it that one man in one moment could bear all the sin, all the darkness, all the sorrow in a moment? But he did. And this is a reminder of that. Let's drink. Father, we thank you for the mystery that you've hidden in this world. We thank you for the mystery that you've hidden in relationships. We thank you for the mystery you've hidden in silly things like candles, Christmas lights, bread and juice. We thank you for the way you want to reveal yourself. You want to make your truth accessible. May we connect to it. But I also pray for Cornerstone Church today that we would see and take very seriously that we are jars of clay. Our own individual lives, but our lives together whether it's family, friends, a church, whatever it is that you have placed treasure inside, Father, may we be stewards of your treasure. May we bring your presence, remind people that you are close and that all your benefits and your love and your joy is accessible to them because you are there. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.